Welcome to Leadership Revealed, where John Paul shares his no-nonsense approach to all things leadership and scaling businesses. John interviews some of the most successful people in their industries to see what it takes to become a great leader. Be prepared for the truth about leadership and business. Please welcome your host, serial entrepreneur and top-selling author, John Paul. Hi everyone and welcome to another edition of Leadership Revealed um, and I'm absolutely thrilled to invite Joel Levy with me. Now just a brief introduction, uh, Joel is an author of more than a dozen books on science and history including Newton's Notebook, Psychology for Busy People and Why We Do the Things We Do and he's just written a new one which we're going to give a, a real plug and some links uh, in the description below called Nuclear Accidents Meltdown. Um, so Joel has appeared on national TV, television, numerous local and national radio shows. He's got a BSc in Biological Sciences and an MA in Psychology. And today, amongst other things, we're going to be talking about behaviour in leadership roles and the psychology of building a business. So without further ado, Joel, thank you so much for spending your time and joining us today. Thank you for asking me. No worries. So just for those guys who haven't, haven't heard of you, I mean, I've got, this is a bit of a shameless plug. I've read one of your books, Why We Do the Things We Do. I've had that for a couple of years now. It's a fantastic book. But for those who don't know you, can you just give us a little bit of an idea how you got started, who you are, what you've wrote, that type of thing? Um, sure, yeah. So I'm an author and I mainly specialise, as you already discussed, in history and science and particularly the history of science. Um, and I guess my main thing is, is to make um, quite potentially complex issues uh, accessible. And so, you know, my books are all for a general readership. Um, and the one that you were just talking about, why we do the things we do, is, is, is a prime example. It's, it's not very long, you know, and it's separated into short chapters, which uh, are present in the form of questions, and then I kind of try and answer them. So it's things like, you know, why do we dream or what makes us happy or things like that. And so the idea is to, um, to, to answer those with the benefit of, um, you know what psychology says, what the science says. Throw in a you know a few bits of evidence from studies, um, and just you know so so to make uh, the, the scientific uh, knowledge there accessible. And so that's this book specifically. That's generally true of all my books. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. So with the process of, of writing such a book, especially when it's you know it can't just come from your head straight up to a paper. You've got to do all that research. What's what's the process behind? Does it take a hell of a long time to write something like that? I mean, it's a bit like being a student, you know, and, and you know, yourself, you know that you're doing lots of studies now as, as an adult, um, you know, you have to do, it's a bit, it's a lot like being a student, you go and you do a bunch of research and then you write it up. I mean, it's good to have, to be targeted, which is why having a structure like I was just discussing with, with the questions is quite good because it helps to direct the way that you do your research and the way that you uh, then, you know, write down what, what you need to know. I mean, this book is a bit different. A lot of my books are a bit more narrative, say. So so the, the latest one that you kindly plugged for me, Meltdown, which is about um, nuclear accidents, is a lot more narrative. Um, this one's more of an overview of a science. But, but what is a general thread is that I like to try and explain things like basic principles. It sounds a bit boring. And, you know, I try and make them interesting. But what particularly I like to try and do, because whenever you start looking at... Um, any science or history or history of science, you get these really interesting nuggets, the kind of thing that, you know, if, if you had a, oh, did you know that, you know, mm -hmm. thing on Twitter, and, and you come across those all the time when you start doing research. So I try and 
I think when you've been writing as long as I have, then you then you have a bit of a nose for them, a bit like a you know a wild boar looking for truffles, um, and you try and you know drop them in. So so there should be a few things in here. Um, for instance, I, mean, I can't even try to think of some off the top of my head, but um, you know just really interesting studies. Um, yeah. You know, I'm trying to think of. Uh, so for instance, I, I was obviously rereading a bit in preparation for talking to you and. Um, it's just history, classic studies. Uh, I was very interested to read about, um, there was one that shed light on, on sort of uh, racism, for instance, and this is in 1950s America, where there was a lot of racism in, in civil society. And they did a study that looked at black and white coal miners in Pennsylvania. And they found that when they were below ground, working in like the heat and the danger and the you know, dirt and the close confines um, underground, all those racial distinctions disappeared. And they didn't even notice them. And as soon as they came back above ground, those kind of social structures reasserted themselves and they started to show quite, you know, racially biased behavior. Mm. Um, and it's just, you know, little nuggets like that. That's a fascinating little study, which I'd never heard of until I was sort of researching this book yeah. or something. So I've got to try and drop things in like that. Yeah, that's, fa that's fascinating. I mean, the world of psychology is a complex subject. So the fact that you're trying to simplify it can, can help us in all manners. And, and I suppose in, in business, understanding other people and the psychology around it can really, really help us improve our business. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, um, and that works on several levels. Um, you know, on the most basic level, it's helpful to know perhaps about um, inbuilt cognitive biases that we all have um, which might you know cause us you know, which might mislead us or, or you know I'm sure that you, you must have seen a lot of evidence of people making uh, mistakes or maybe errors of judgment or rushing into judgment things like that um, hopefully if you're a bit aware of some of those um, biases you might be better able to guard against for instance making mistakes just as an example but there's obviously there's different levels as well at, at a higher level um, the more that you are able to understand your own emotions and thoughts then the better able you are to regulate them and the more effective you're going to be just as a person but I'm sure in business as well and I'm sure there's lots of quite specific ways um, that you know that for instance, that you, if you're happier, for instance, you'll be more productive, just as a very general rule. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, psychology has a lot to tell us about, about happiness, especially nowadays, it's quite a hot topic in uh, psychology. And I believe that, you, you know, you know this better than anyone because I understand you're studying it um, in particular, that um, this sort of idea about emotional intelligence and what they call optimal psychology or positive psychology, a real buzzword in psychology at the moment, mm -hmm. because traditionally psychology wasn't very focused on um, it, it was more of a kind of dysfunction model and a disease model and, and a, you know, a what's wrong with us model um, yeah. and looking at things like that. And one of the pioneers of um, positive psychology talks about um, building what's strong instead of fixing what's wrong. Um, and so there's this idea that actually um, that's what psychology ought to be, you know, at least as much about um, helping to develop healthy well-being uh, and healthy people and and you know as a tool in everyday life for us to help you know to in the same way that you might exercise your body mm -hmm. and then optimal psychology can help you to, to to build a better life i suppose in that sense i mean they're quite lofty ideals but they obviously have quite specific practical applications i think in day-to-day -day life as well yeah as soon as we started to focus in on the people and within our business and to employ 60 odd staff 
and and create that that culture and understand what motivates people. So you you know you've got Maslow, you've got Alderfer, Hertzberg, McClellan, you've got all these behavioural scientists who pretty much just ripped off Maslow. But the fact is that they you know they've got their own yeah. their own version of it. I think Maslow called it self actualization. It was attainment, ambition. It's it's progressing towards. A goal. Yeah, that, that's. What I mean, there's a lot of, of words for it. Yeah, and and you can talk about you know. Um, flow and peak experiences and all that. I mean, you know, I find Maslow quite interesting. I remember reading his particular, I was very struck by a very slightly damning, a dismissive assessment of, they, they, were, they were discussing, you know, that how he's very popular with undergraduates, you know, undergraduates. And I remember this myself when I did psychology. As soon as you get in there and you're like, oh, I've never heard about hierarchy. What's this about hierarchy of needs? This is what Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a kind of, um, model that he built of, of uh, motivations in psychology and he started off with like basic ones like we've all got need for like shelter and sustenance you know basic things to keep us alive and then you get to higher ones like companionship and stuff mm. and then as you go up the pyramid to the peak you get to really lofty ones like self-actualization mm. like becoming a fully fulfilled person and all that you know which are obviously you know they ring true um and of course when you start learning about it, you're like, hey, this is brilliant. You know, this is so true. I really love this. This is really, po-. and it feels positive. It makes you feel, you know, uh, like it could be a tool for better living. Exactly. So that's why it's positive. But, um, but then the question arises, you know, psychology has, wants to be a science. It's meant to be the science of mental behavior, um, the science of the mind um, and, of, and of thought and behavior. And, um, so then you have the question, well, is this a science or is this just philosophy or is it, is it even philosophy? Is it just like, you know, um, is it kind of slightly glib self-help speak? Um, and there is that danger. Um, and obviously that's one of the criticisms level that, for instance, a positive psychology. So, so the counter to that then is to try to do, you know, detailed studies and experiments and, and show that there's some actual utility to what you're doing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, in, in your opinion, based on your knowledge, what, what is a true, what, what does motivate us? What does make us happy? What will, in, in, in a more of a business context, how do we get more from our staff? How do we make them happy? So ultimately, they're more productive. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I'm going to end up talking about some quite vague things, you know, which aren't really to do with the bottom line. And, and you know, I don't run a business personally, so I don't, I've never had to resolve the tension between the the high-minded ideals of fostering happiness and fulfillment in your staff against the bottom line, you know, because it's all very well saying, well, it would be great if we could give everyone like a duvet day once a week yeah. or, you know, send them on all these courses that would make them better. But then obviously you have to pay for that. And, you know, is your business going to survive? Is that a working business model? So so I have to be careful, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm not... So, yeah, I wouldn't offer myself as a guru in that sense. You know, you, you, you'll have a much better idea of the realities of this than I will. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, where, where do, you know, it's, it's hard to know where to start. Do we talk about different types of happiness? I mean, you know, I think it's quite interesting to focus on, um, again, we're talking about opt- the optimal psychology here, about different levels of happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are different models that have been talked about. So one that I, I think is very instructive is... is um, is the sort of uh, the, there's three levels of I mean and, and in fact sorry just to say that um, in optimal psychology they sometimes prefer to talk about things like well-being rather than happiness because happiness is such a loaded word mm. and it's not necessarily 
uh, what they're talking about in in a, in a, in the most glib superficial way. It's not about happiness. It's more about well-being. So there's three levels of well-being. Um, you can talk about subjective well-being, individual well-being, and group or or, or community well-being. And those correspond to three types of happiness, which. Um, psychologists and philosophers talk about which is um three kinds called hedonic eudaimonic and civic so hedonic as in hedonism is your most basic level it's about pleasure so it's and that corresponds in a way to subjective well-being so what gives me subjective happiness is full you know fulfilling desires and and the most obvious sort of forms of pleasure like eating a nice meal or mm. you know doing a fun thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then we get this, what's called eudaimonic, which is from a, a Greek sort of root, which is something Aristotle used to talk about, which is the, the, the contentment or well-being that comes from living a right life, from fully using the faculties that you've got that as a human, that you're, I mean, in, in the ancient Greeks thought about it as living in accordance with the way you was you were designed to live, if you like, that humans were supposed to live. So, if you were the most human you could be, which meant reasoning, which meant being, you know, uh, yeah, a reasoning person rather than um, just a overly, you know, purely emotional or, or brutish or whatever person, then that was uh, virtuous in its own right, and then that led to happiness. So, so in our context, we can see that as, as you know, what we might talk about full being fulfilled and being self-actualized, uh, which means like to making the most of your capabilities, um, you know, not letting opportunities slip, not prevaricating, you know, and, you know, and so it might, and it involves things like working hard, say, yeah. which is kind of, is, is kind of counter to hedonic pleasure. You know, hedonic pleasure might seem like it's about pleasure at the moment and having to work really hard is not much fun, obviously. Um, but in, in a broader sense, that can bring fulfillment. And then the highest level is what kind of civic um, or community sort of well-being. And then that's things about giving back to the community and being engaged with your community um, and, and to being a good citizen. And a lot of that's about altruism and, uh, and things like that, which again, they might have a cost to you as a person. So, you know, I'm sure it's not much fun to go out and whatever, I don't know, for instance, knock on doors for a political party, yeah. okay? To go out canvassing, it's probably not much fun. But if you're engaged like that, then then that's ultimately more fulfilling to you as a person. So, I mean, the question is, what does that mean in a, in, a, in the business world, in, in your company, for instance? Well, I mean, I you know, I don't know. Do, does your company do charity work? Does it do outreach? Does it do, you know, pro bono work? Does it, does it you know, do things like that, maybe? Or maybe if, uh, for instance, you did work that was to do with community housing or, or low-income housing, things like that, you can see that while they have a cost, they might, in the bigger picture, they'll have benefits. They'll have benefits for the for the um, company as a kind of cohesive whole, a sense of community, a sense of identity, and for the individuals in the company because they feel like they're contributing something and they're engaged in something, something mm. meaningful. Mm. So it's a bit, pretty much a, quite a complex subject really it's not just a case of i go to work with a smile on my face it's the actual actions that allow me to exactly and the trouble is a lot of it, it a lot of it is about doing the work isn't it about hard work there's no simple answers and i know it's and a lot of this thing and the thing is somebody listening to this might think well he's just stating the obvious you know or he's just coming out with like 
you know, good, it's good to do good things or it's nice to be nice or, you know, and then, and a lot of psychology is like that. A lot of it's like, well, yeah, that's common sense, isn't it? But quite often it's about stating them. You know, a lot of these things are unsaid or unarticulated. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree with that. And um, one thing you touched on earlier on was the common biases. Um, I, I love talking about biases, you know, um, it happens all the time in, in our industry and business where, you know, oh, yeah. Dunning-Kruger, the endowment effect, all those types of things. Um, your opinion on it, if you can understand it, then you can overcome it a lot easier and it'll make you better. Yeah. Like how, how does making judgments work? How does that part of psychology work? And one of the theories that, um, that psychology started off with was, was this model of humans as little scientists. It envi- as everyone's working as a scientist in the way that they do these things. So they're all taking in data and they're making judgments um, and they're doing it all like rationally without emotion and they're considering all the variables in the same way that, that we imagine that an AI would. Although I was just saying that actually that's a whole different topic about AIs because it turns out that AIs are not, you know, the, the popular picture, the AIs only have the, all the... Um, all the biases that we've programmed into them. So they're not actually, you know, quite as, as fantastic as, as we imagine them to be. Um, but that's a whole different topic. Anyway, so, um, but that was never a realistic um, picture of human nature. Like we're not all little scientists, are we? It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And in fact, um, a more uh, powerful model, if you like, that arose was something called the cognitive miser hypothesis, which sounds great. And it's the idea that we have to be cognitive misers in the sense that we have to husband our mental resources because we haven't got the energy, the mental bandwidth, or even the time to do these complicated calculations and fine judgments. We have to make quick judgments on scanty information in real time and quite, and, and obviously, in our evolutionary past, that would have been a matter of survival. You know, mm. is that bush rustling because it's the wind, or because there's a tiger in there about to jump on me? You have mm. to make a snap judgment. And so, in order to help our brains do this, we developed a number of um, sort of cognitive shortcuts that um, psychologists call heuristics, which is a kind of fancy word for rules of thumb. And so, we're all equipped with these heuristics to help us be sort of agile and adaptive and fast um, decision makers. And, and, you know, there's a famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, I think, which is all about this. Yeah. Um, and and that's, and so, so we're all equipped with that. And that's, they're very powerful tools in our cognitive armory, if you like. They make us as successful as we are. Um, but they also mean that we all have these inbuilt vulnerabilities because, you know, we have to have these heuristics to function, these rules of thumb, but that means obviously that we're then vulnerable to, to making like snap judgments or um, to uh, sort of unconsciously waiting or privileging some certain information. Um, and that shows up in some really unexpected ways. Like they, there was this hilarious study that they did on names. It turns out that some names are just more trustworthy than others. Um, and so the study that I quote in the book was done quite a long time ago, so it's a bit out of date, but it was interesting. I think they found that something like David is very trustworthy, but Edna is perceived as unattractive or things like that. And so, so you know, and obviously it's a bit rough if you're in business, you can't change your name, can you? Um, and it might be that, I don't know, there could be, if you did a study, you might find that, I don't know, that Nigel's are less successful than John, for instance, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but um, but it's just that kind of thing. It's silly, isn't it? We shouldn't make judgments based on people's names, but mm. we do. Um, another powerful um, uh, 
factor that really influences people's um, judgment of other people is something called is facial symmetry. So um, how symmetrical someone's face is can really dramatically affect how trustworthy we find them. And what's extraordinary about this is how quickly that judgment is made. So as within, a, uh, I think it was, uh, what's the figure? I, I wrote it down to me, 38 milliseconds, right? Which is hard to, you know, to explain like uh, as a meaningful gap of time, uh, just, you know, in ordinary life, it's a very short period of time. It's probably faster than you can blink. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already made a decision about someone just based on their face, never having spoken to them, we don't know anything about them. Um, and so that really makes us, and you can see that makes us vulnerable then, doesn't it? You know, if we're making snap judgments like that based on people's faces, then then are we really giving them a fair shake? And then, and then you start factoring all sorts of unconscious biases and you can see why, you know, some of the reasons that we have problems. Um, and um, like this facial judgment thing is an example of what psychologists call the primacy effect, which is, again, a fancy way of saying the, f- the first impressions count. Um, which of course I'm sure is important in your business. You know that I'm sure if you're going for a meeting or a sales pitch or something, then as soon as you walk in the room, the people you're pitching to have made a lot of decisions about you already. Mm. So there's something you have to consider. It's actually really interesting because there's a, there's a lot of various forums that I'm a part of. And, and, and one of the questions is, should we go in as dressed smart as in a suit, like old fashioned, or should we go in as a, you know, open neck shirt or whatever. And some people say, I'll go in my shorts. And, you know, you can't go in your shorts and expect, yes, that might make you feel comfortable. You might be on top of your game because you feel comfortable, but it's not about you. It's what about other people that they're going to be making. And I guess you need to know your audience, don't you? I mean, I guess if you're going to pitch to some cool, trendy, you know, um, web company on Old Street, then maybe it would be a good idea to turn up in shorts. Mm. But if you're going to pitch to some, you know, Coots Investment Bank, then you probably want to go in a suit and tie, don't you? So Yeah, yeah. Horses for courses. Yeah. yeah, and we touched on emotional intelligence, and I know before we started the uh, re- recording, you know, I've got a big, big fascination with it and emotional intelligence. And can you just give us a little bit more of an understanding about what it is, so some people might not have heard about it or don't know much about it, and how that can interact in our daily lives? Yeah. So, I mean, intelligence obviously is quite a traditional and important focus of psychology, um, and there was always a lot of debate about what is intelligence? How can you measure it? Most people have heard of IQ, which stands for intelligence quotient, um, where the idea is that you um, you give someone a battery of tests quite often on quite abstract things like, you know, um, spatial rotation, like imagining what a shape would look like if it was rotated slightly and things like that. Um, and the idea then is you're measuring people's cognitive skills and you compare it against uh, a sample of other people of similar age, for instance, and, and then you you, you you try and work out, you calculate how, how close to the average they are if they're above average and you, and you work out their IQ. And so then a lot, of, a lot of reaction against that. Well, you know, there's a famous saying that um, IQ only tests the ability to do well at IQ tests, for instance. Um, now that's a bit of a fallacy, um, but a lot of people, I think right from the beginning felt that, um, that the use of things like IQ was missing important um, variables and important um, aspects of human intelligence. Um, yeah, emotional intelligence is an obvious one, but I was quite interesting. Um, I remember reading that someone was pointing out that like intelligence with you, being good with your hands, for instance, is another thing that we don't really think about, yeah. but maybe that should be a type of intelligence. Anyway, but so emotional intelligence is, 
I mean, it covers a lot of ground. Um, I, I, it's about intra and interpersonal um, intelligence. So intra, like within yourself, is about um, whether or not you can recognize and monitor and control um, and manage your own emotional states. And then interpersonal is about how you relate to other people. So it's how you can do the same, you know, how you recognize other people's emotional states, how you can maybe manage them or respond to them more effectively. Um, and I'm sure, you know, we all know in our lives, um, people who, for instance, don't seem to understand why something that they've said casually is upsetting to somebody else, mm -hmm. whereas someone else is very good at talking to someone who's upset and making them, you know, making them feel better and stuff. And you can see there in, you know, emotional intelligence in operation. And I'm sure, again, that everyone will know someone who's really clever, but just seems to be really um, sort of, um, you know, ham-fisted when it comes to, dealing with other people that, you know, they, they, they're not very, or maybe they're not very good at even just things like, you know, you must have a lot of meetings, I guess. And you'll see that some people are probably quite good at reading the room and knowing when they've lost the room and they're wittering on about something and no one's listening and no one's interested. And, you know, everyone wishes they'd shut up. Whereas other people might start making a long-winded point, but then they'll bring it back because they'll be able to read the room better. Well, that's an example of emotional intelligence in operation. Yeah. I've got to say that the best, employees that we've had have unwittingly had higher levels of emotional intelligence the communication skills have been fantastic but also as you said you're being able to read the room to being able to understand when people are upset or they're angry or they're peed off or, or whatever it is and then just adapt and evolve the conversation to suit that person and yeah sometimes no one went to be quiet yeah well and, and so you can see or you know and so a high EI is, you know, is, is a good term, isn't it? It's sort of, or EQ, I think. Yeah, emotional quotient is something that they throw around as, as a kind of counterbalance to IQ. But you can see how that's obviously going to have um, beneficial um, effects in, you know, or, or it could be beneficial in business, yeah. Yeah, and Daniel Goldman, most famously, he's, he, I know he didn't come up with it, but he's the one that sort of brought it. Yes, he wrote a big bestseller about it. Yeah. I mean, and so one of the open questions is, you know, can you train yourself to become more emotionally intelligent? I mean, it's a question about IQ as well. Can you, you know, we can all train to get more knowledge. Can you train to become more intelligent? You know, maybe not. And so there's a similar question about emotional intelligence. Is it just something you're naturally gifted with and you can't change the... um the level that you have. And I mean, I certainly think, you know, anyone who studies um, something like, uh, you know, there's a type of popular type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. And one of the reasons it's popular is because it, it teaches people quite simple tools for helping themselves by say, monitoring their own um, thought processes and behaviors and making simple changes. And anyone can learn that. And then as soon as you do that, then I think you are learning um, tools. And I think in that sense, yeah, it, there's some quite simple things you can do to improve your emotional intelligence, or at least maybe to make the most out of the emotional intelligence that you have, you know? I mean, uh, you know, intelligence is a potential, isn't it? We don't all fulfill it. And again, I think that's the same is true of emotional intelligence, yeah. I could definitely speak from first hand that, you know, being in business about 11, 12 years now, when, when I first started, um, I was very ham-fisted to use, to use your word, bull in a china shop. And I know that didn't stand as in good stead. And the longer you go and the more meetings you have, and, you know, you might be really frustrated in a meeting that things aren't going your way, but instead of just acting out of 
you know, spontaneous. You just sit back and just take it all in and just not make the decisions or say things that can, you know, really get you in, in hot water. So I think emotional intelligence, it can it can happen. Whether it can be learned, like, you know, classroom and in a short space of time, you can get better. I'm, I'm jury's out on that for me, but you can yeah. definitely evolve. But see, I mean, it's interesting what you just said, though, touches on a, a another difficult area of, you know, which is relates to this about psychology and business, which is this um, idea, you know, I have a, a thing in my book about, um, you know, there's a chapter called Do Nice Guys Finish Last? And it, yeah. and it talks about this idea about, um, you know, to what extent uh, do certain traits, which maybe are not very positive traits, actually stand you in better stead in business? And one of the most striking things is this study that, um, that showed that um, there's a personality trait called agreeableness, where, um, you know, people who are uh, at one end of that dimension are very agreeable as, you know, you might say they're highly emotionally intelligent. You might also describe them as pushovers or walkovers, for instance, whereas people who are disagreeable, obviously that sounds negative, but then maybe they are hard-nosed, maybe they don't take any crap, all that kind of stuff. Um, and there was some fascinating study that showed that, um, that low agreeableness correlated very strongly with being higher earning. And that the less agreeable you were, the more you earned. Yeah. Um, and then, and so again, that obviously goes to a lot of um, fairly, you know, of truisms, if you like, of, of cliches about business. You know that that you know the 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 guy that is the pushiest will do the best, and you know people who are you know trample over other people will get to the top and stuff. And so there is this tension, you know, and and so there does seem to be some evidence that that's true. And again, you must have seen that a lot in your business. That there must be some people who maybe are not very savoury characters who've done really well. Oh, absolutely. I think um, I think the agreeable thing is a really interesting one. I think that people ruthless is is another one. So some people, successful people, are very very ruthless. They work within morals and ethics, and they, they, but they just pounce on an opportunity, or you could you could say they're a little bit predatory in terms of the way they act. They're not you know screwing people out of money or kicking people out of homes or houses, but when it comes to business, they are making those hard decisions that other people might wince a little bit and go oh really you did that but at the end of the day they're they're successful and they understand to get to the top and it's the same with sports people you know you've got to be you've got to be selfish you've got to be me 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 and and Arnold Schwarzenegger is a a one I quote all the time where his father unfortunately passed away and he missed the funeral because he had to train for a competition I'm not suggesting that normal people are like that but in his world to get to the top and let's be honest he 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 did um, that's what he had to do to get where he wanted to be yeah, and so then we end up with this tension, don't we, between all the kind of touchy-feely stuff we were talking about, like, oh, it's good to be emotionally intelligent and stuff, and then and then the other side of the coin is this, and, uh, and you know, and to take it to its extreme, there was that, um, there was a lot of fuss a few years ago, and there was a book about, what was it called, the psych- I can't remember what the name of the book was. Oh, the psychopath. Oh, sorry? Was it the psychopath test? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a John Ronson book, yeah, which is really good. And it, but so I think he talks about how, but then there was a whole film about about how corporations are like psychopaths as well. You know, if there were people, they'd be psychopaths. Um, <laughs> but also about uh, there was, you know, there is evidence that a lot of high functioning psychopaths are the people who are like captains of industry, and that's how they got there. Mm-hmm. And we don't recognise them because the, because they're you know they're high function they're not out murdering people they're not serial killers but they do have a lot of traits of psychopathy which are things like 
lack of empathy for other people and you know stuff like that and actually that stands you in really good stead um and like so, so psychopaths for instance could be very emotionally intelligent because they're very good at manipulating people mm. um they can understand uh you know what might make someone upset they just don't care if they do it mm. so um so you know emotional intelligence i suppose in the, you know illustrates for us that emotional intelligence doesn't have to mean being a great guy it, it just means being you know, able to understand and maybe yeah yeah to uh, to monitor and to understand and to manage uh, emotions including other people's emotions very well so that you know obviously like all these things it could be good or bad yeah well there was, a, there was that famous interview with jordan peterson and, and kathy newman where he was talking about why uh, you know, agreeable people, which tend to be more females, tend not to get more peer rises because they agree when they get told or they don't fight for it when they get told, no, you're, you're not getting the peer rise. Men are a bit more aggressive, a bit more testosterone, and they tend, tend to get more. And that could be one of the reasons why men are getting paid more than women in certain industries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's obviously, that. I think there's a lot of evidence, isn't there, exactly, that, yeah. um, and that women suffer more from imposter syndrome and stuff like that, which is, I guess is another aspect of this, isn't it? Is, is yeah. that this kind of slightly misplaced or uh, overrated self-confidence that men have yeah. is, is an expression of, yeah, of, of less, yeah, maybe ex exactly of lower agreeability, yeah. We will go down that route because that never ends well when you start talking about that sort of stuff. Joe, <laughs> uh, uh, last question, just signature question. I re really enjoyed this, by the way. Um, what is leadership to you and how can we use psychology to improve it? Oh, that's a tough one to me. Um, I mean, I, I feel a bit of a fraud talking about it because as a writer, you live, it's funny, you live quite a solitary existence. You know, I, mean, I don't run, you know, you run a big company full of people, you know, I just sit, sit in front of a laptop tapping away. I mean, you know, it, I mean, interestingly, my only experience of leadership is, is I'm currently chair of governors at my kid's school and it's been a real eye-opener for me because I've never done anything like that before mm. um and so I mean just so so in a way that's my tiny sample that I'm drawing on really mm. um to, to to start pontificating about it but I guess it's a lot of the things we've already talked about it's about um about being emotionally intelligent so that you can um understand other people's motivations and where they are and monitor the way that your interaction with them is going um but i think it would also be about um being quite assertive stroke decisive mm -hmm. you know again i mean you know a lot of it comes down to almost just the the actual nitty-gritty of chairing a meeting almost mm -hmm. you know We've all been in meetings where the chair lets things, you know, people rabbit on. Uh, yeah, and so, so I think being quite assertive and decisive, and being, you know, ready to sort of to to make to say no, that's enough of that. Let's mm. move on to something else. Mm. You know, just on that basis. Um, I think there's a there's a whole debate about um, the extroversion introversion leaders you know obviously they have a lot of traits that would seem to make them better leaders but then there's a lot of traits that introverts have like being more reflective and things like that which might make them in the round more effective i think there's another personality dimension called openness um and i think that having a high degree of openness is probably very important to be an effective leader 
Mm, yeah, appreciate that. Joel, it's been absolutely fantastic learning from you and it's been a fascinating subject. Um, if it's okay with you, we'll put some uh, links to your books. Uh, can they get them if you've got a website or just go on Amazon? Yeah, Amazon's, yeah, probably the best. Yeah, yeah, but thank you very much. It's very kind of you and it's been great talking to you too. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.